You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm David Rowe. Welcome back to our special series, the Sydney Dialogue Summit Sessions, which features conversations with leading writers from government, industry and civil society on the sidelines of the recent Sydney Dialogue. This week, John Leslie, who is Director, Trade and Investment and Lead for Space and Defence at Austrade, speaks to Heather Richman, Entrepreneur in Residence at BMNT, and Linda Lowry, Senior Advisor with West Exec Advisors. Together they discuss defence innovation, investment and security. The conversation covers the different approaches of government and industry to innovation, how the two can support one another, and how democracies can overcome obstacles and acquire much needed capabilities more quickly. Good morning, my name is John Leslie. Welcome to the Sydney Dialogue. I'm joined today by Heather Richmond and Linda Laurie. I work for Austrade in San Francisco. I lead uh, space and defense as a trade and investment director, and I've worked quite a bit with both Heather and Linda, and I'm very happy that they're joining us this morning. Heather, could you introduce yourself for us? Absolutely, John. Thank you for having uh, both of us. Um, my name is Heather Richmond. I'm based out of Menlo Park, California, which is kind of the heart of Silicon Valley. Um, I work. My day job is a group called BMNT, Begin Morning Nautical Twilight, um, which actually is a consultancy where all of our clients are internal DoD and intelligence community clients. Um, separately, though, about uh, June 2019, started to really look in to private capital and trusted capital and started something or launched something called the Defense Investor Network in the US. Uh, we, about a year ago, launched the Defense Investor Network in Australia and just last weekend um, launched the Defense Investor Network in the UK. Oh, great. Linda? Uh, John, thanks so much for having us. I um, recently left the White House. I was uh, the Assistant Director for Research and Technology Security in the Office of Science and Technology Policy, where I um, worked on um, CFIUS, which is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. We looked at foreign acquisition of U.S. businesses and um, export controls, um, helped stand up the Chips and Science Act. Uh, before that, I was um, at the Pentagon for many years, um, and one of my duties at the Pentagon was as the general counsel of the Defense Innovation Unit um, out in Silicon Valley, where I got to meet um, Heather. Um, and so my focus is all, has been um, trying to protect our critical technology from adversaries and to ensure that um, investments um, from uh, U.S. and allied sources get into the technologies that we need to uh, survive. Great. Um, thank you both very much for, for coming this morning. And I want to talk a little bit about investment and security. You know, it's something that the three of us have actually worked quite a bit on over the past few years. And I'm glad we get to share this with an Aspie audience. Coming back to the Aspie audience, I'm going to talk to you a little bit, Heather, because maybe some of them are not all that aware of, of what venture capital does and sure. how it operates. So can you give us kind of a quick primer on, on VC? Absolutely. So within kind of the private capital world, there are things called venture capital. There's private equity. These are all kind of different different tools, kind of different stages of investment. We'll kind of focus on venture here um, to start with. But basically, it's a very aggressive um, way to fund early stage technologies. You know, usually you're investing in the, the team for the most part. So in out in Silicon Valley, um, when you go and you pitch a venture capitalist, um, typically they're looking at is this is this a team with a capability, but is this a team really that could take this to market, right? So it's it's typically by the time you're going out to raise venture capital funding, um, you've proven your technology for the most part, and you're really looking then to commercialize it. Um, that's a very different model and a very different way than than say the government thinks about these sorts of things. And so for a long time there was a really a really great divide really between these two worlds. Um, I know we're going to get into it in a minute, but um, I think what we're finding is that cutting edge technology and world-class talent 
Um, when those two things come together, that's when you actually find your most mission critical capabilities. And those capabilities are then commercialized at a much more rapid speed outside of government than typically inside of government. Um, and so I think what we've really been looking at from the defense and the intelligence community lens is how do we take that model of, of rapid innovation? We've, we've talked kind of about speed and scale, and those are really the two things that venture capitalists and then entrepreneurs focus on. Can we be first to market? What's your unfair advantage? What are you doing better than anybody else? And then can you actually scale it in a commercial space? And so doing a lot of, we call it customer discovery, finding out where is the market? How large is the market? Is this something worth doing? And are you the best at doing it? And so I think what we're trying to, what both Lynn and I have spent quite a bit of time looking at is how do we really encourage that world-class talent and those mission critical capabilities and the venture capitalists that are then funding them. Um, and like I said, they're, they're not very forgiving um, as, as far as timelines and milestones. How do we harness those folks to then really um, you know, bring the capabilities that, that all, of our, all of our countries and all of our militaries need? Great, because you brought me right to my next question, Heather, <laughs> which is you know, private investment hasn't normally played a role or, or conventionally played a role in national security. Um, yet that's what we're talking about right now. And so I'm going to switch a little bit to you, Linda, and say, because you've worked on the government side of this, what is the role for private investment in security innovation? And what does government have to do to get comfortable with that? Well, that's a real, that's a great question. I mean, as you know, government, uh, particularly the U.S. Department of Defense and um, other areas of the, of the U.S. government, um, were for a long time the leaders in investment. Um, of course, we were the leaders in, in defense tech throughout the history um, of the of the 19th, 20th century. Um, and really, you know, we talk about the internet, you talk about GPS, you're talking about um, robotics and, you know, every one of the critical technologies up to about 20 years ago, the US government was the leader. Um, Funding um, actually, let's let's go back um, before before that. To really, after um, after Vietnam, and there was sort of the um, the uh, disinterest in in military military after Vietnam, and funding was greatly cut. And so the private sector realized that they're um, going to be the the leaders in, in in innovation, led including led by DARPA and including um, grant making organizations. But now we're in a situation where the private sector is innovating much faster rate than than government can do, and um, and particularly for non-government purposes, for non-military purposes. And part of what I was doing out of DIU in Silicon Valley was can, can you explain DIU? That's okay. a, an acronym. Sorry, um, de, the Defense Innovation Unit. Um, there's also an equivalent um, organization here in Australia. It's an organization that is um, looking to accelerate procurement from the private sector, the non-military um, defense, uh, non-defense sector into the military. So think quadcopters, think. It's kind of a front door. It's a front door. Yeah. So um, we're looking at technologies that um, were never considered for, for military purposes, but they, they have um, applications for military purposes. But the point is, is that d d um, the department has to do more Department of Defense has to do more and is trying to do more. They just, in December, Secretary of Defense Austin um, announced the creation of a new office, the Office of Strategic Capital at the Pentagon, which is working to um, crowd in private capital where um, the department is already um, providing for loans and loan guarantees and identifying which technologies the department is going to be looking to procure. Part of the problem is, is that these early stage technologies are not ripe for government procurement. And 
but at the same time, we don't want adversarial governments buying from them. Um, and we want to make we want to have them mature and we want to grow them. But and we want to keep them allied, um, American, Australian, British, um, NATO. But um, we um, aren't ready to actually cut a check to buy them. And that's the challenge is how do you incentivize these companies to stay allied um, and, and free from adversarial capital um, before we're ready to buy? So you bring in an interesting point up there, which is the government increasingly needs these innovations that are coming out of the commercial world. Um, and then Heather, you've talked to us a little bit about the role of the, the, um, how venture capital operates. But in my experience, you know, five years ago, if you went to a, a venture capital firm and, and said, hey, I want it, I'm a, a, an innovative company, I want to work for the government, the venture capital firm would have said, mm, we're not so interested in that, particularly if you wanted to work with the Department of Defense. So what brought the needs of the government together with private investors in this world? I say, I mean, I, th I think the reason that a lot of venture investors and we kind of say would give them the hand, um, they would, you know, it was it was the speed thing. It was back to, you know, the 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 not the, le the levels of non-transparency working with the government, um, truly understanding what the needs really were, not these high level, you know, everyone seems to have their five or 10 or 15 key topic areas. But when one of your critical technology areas is energy as a whole, you know, that's not very informative when you're trying to um, when you're trying to be a, a startup or a venture capitalist trying to get into the space and trying to potentially sell to the United States you know, Department of Defense or government. Um, I, I think what's happened is, is, is there's, there's also been a, a big mind shift. Um, I think the face of war has changed very dramatically. We used to be, you know, very kinetic, very hardware, very, we talked about, you know, aircraft carriers and this $18 billion aircraft care. Now we're talking about everything from biotechnologies to cyber to AI, a lot of software. And so um, the Department of Defense has been forced into, you know, a, a big a big kind of business model in Silicon Valley is blank as a service, software as a service, data as a service. And for a long time, the government could, did, couldn't fathom, couldn't figure out how to buy blank as a service. It was like you buy a big piece of metal. Um, and so I think that's been a, a place where I think the military and the, and the government um, has done a pretty good job. It's taken a while, but they've, they've realized that and they started to harness it for a long time. If there was a really key piece of software, um, the government would try to buy, build it themselves. And so then they'd be, you know, the second that they finished it, it was five years obsolete already. And I think that speed piece of it and that that idea of relevancy um, and really being on the bleeding edge of all these things, I think that's where the government was realizing we need the private sector who is constantly, I mean, it's in order to stay in business and to make money, they have to be the best and they have to keep improving. Um, and so blank as a service, you know, that's, that's, that's a concept that the government's been able to wrap their head around. It's still not perfect, um, but I think that, you know, by the setting up of Defense Innovation Unit, DIU, um, we've set up, you know, AFWorks and Naval X and, and Softworks and all these different works, Spaceworks, which are basically innovation hubs. Um, and so it's a way, it's a much easier way for early stage companies to get a foot in there, get some early stage capital very pretty easily, frankly, if it's a good idea, um, and then have some handholding because navigating government and Department of Defense is still incredibly difficult. I mean, part of the problem, if I can just piggyback Please. on that, is the budget cycle. So the, United, the U.S. government and probably the government of Australia has been considered an unreliable partner. Mm -hmm. um, we, um, you know, our budgets are, are created by Congress um, who can either, you know, slash or add, um, depending on the whims of um, people's congressional districts. And so you can't be you can't be. Um, promise that you're going to actually have this kind of money for the next 10 years to really scale your um, your technology. 
Um, and and the other problem in the U.S. government is um, we have what's called the POM cycle, which um, is a three-year budget cycle. So the budgets that are um, that the president um, uh, President Biden just submitted to Congress about two weeks ago um, are for um, not just technologies that they want to buy this year, but from three years from now. And so it's very hard to know what innovation is going to happen in three years from now and what you're going to want to buy. And so um, they're this is a, a well-known problem in the U.S., and they're trying to um, disrupt this cycle. Um, there's a commission right now to look into how to how do you fit, figure the budget cycle out better so that we could actually buy today for technology today. I'm going to pull something out of what you just said, Linda, and turn it around a little bit and say, well, government actually gets a, a pretty interesting break out of this uh, out of this relationship because when an agency like the Defense Innovation Unit or AFWERS or, or NavalX points at a set of innovator or an innovative team out there that sends a signal to the private investors and that actually prevent or provides benefit to government you know how does how does that work 100% i think the word signal or signaling is is very key and a, a lot of you know government's been a little bit remiss or or uncomfortable i think is a better word to to signal to to give anyone an unfair advantage whereas all we do in the private sector is try to figure out what's your unfair advantage and so it it didn't really fit, and so I think um, you know there we're, we're looking at things. I think I think commercial space has been a really large tipping point. It's so capital intensive. It's inherently global. It's very much national security written all over it. But we had some amazing companies, and frankly, backed by some billionaires that decided you know we want to get we want to take we want to we want to build commercial space capabilities, and that was incredible. And like you said, John. Um, you know, that that signaling, understanding, you know, with NASA, with NRO, with different folks that are on the government side of that part. I mean, you, you can't build commercial space without directly engaging with the U.S. government and other governments around the globe. You just can't do it. And so that relationship became necessary. It wasn't just a nice to have. It was a have to have. And so I think that was, you know, it also being so capital intensive is a, is a big deal. And so having the partnership between, you know, s space investors that were willing to put the dollars into it. But then also have the relationship with the folks who would eventually, I mean, you, you, you have to launch rockets from, say, a Vandenberg. I mean, you can't just launch them from your from your startup parking lot. You know, that you, so, so I think once we found an industry like that, that was where that relationship was was inherent, was necessary. Um, I think that really changed the way that private investors thought about it. Um, I think another tipping point, frankly, and we'll kind of touching on, you know, Linda Sipis experience from 28 from 2010 to 2018, over two twenty two billion dollars of Chinese capital came into Silicon Valley alone. And that's just what we think we know about. I'm sure it was far more than that. And that doesn't include Boston. That's just one area. Um, and so between China investment, IP theft, we've been looking now at, at COVID. We are watching Ukraine happen. People are frightened. And the, the private capital world is is a little bit, you know, Silicon Valley Bank bailing, which is a whole nother level. Um, it's been it's it's been tricky, but there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think that um, the more that we're seeing, you know, investors one actually wake up um, to, to some of these challenges and to some of these things that we've been aware of for a long time, because we wake up every day and think about national security. Um, a lot of investors don't. And I think that that, that is changing. Um, so I think that they are looking at, you know, some of these some of these capabilities that we need for national security and are willing to get much more involved than they have been in the past. And if I can just um, pull a little bit on that, um, is that having um, a couple of, of, of data points, um, COVID, Ukraine, and just sort of general um, concept that economic security is national security, that we can't have our supply chains all um, overseas. We can't, um, we, we can't rely on the big hardware 
to win wars. We need to we need to have um, these agile um, innovations that we can deploy to to the front um, in Ukraine or to make sure that we have the, the manufacturing capability to to make um, active pharmaceutical ingredients or key starter materials for pharmaceutical products um, that we need these sorts of technologies at home. I love it. You guys feed me right into my, my next question <laughs> on this, which is really the area where the three of us have probably spoken most. And that is increasingly the challenge that confronts the United States and Australia is the same challenge. And the response to that probably shouldn't be a separate Australian and United States response, which raises the question of, is this innovation model that's, that's coming out of, out of Silicon Valley, can it be moved? Can it be extended? And now the stuff that we've really worked on together is what are the opportunities for doing that? We're sitting here at the Sydney Dialogue in Sydney. What are the opportunities for stretching things across the Atlantic, across the Pacific? But what are the challenges um, to that process? Well, I was at the White House. Um, AUKUS was stood up and I participated. Um, I led the um, the White House um, team on the innovation and information sharing working groups um, with great Australian teams um, and, and UK colleagues. Um, and I, I think, I mean, everyone's talking about the sub side, Pillar 1, but Pillar 2 does offer plenty of opportunities for um, for innovation, for Australian, UK, and US uh, private sector to participate in in these other um, in these other areas. Um, they're not ready yet to announce how they're going to be um, uh, looking for you know RFPs, you know requests for proposals. Um, but that will happen, um, and um, when that happens and the floodgates open, there'll be plenty of opportunities for private sector. Um, I'm going to give you just a, a little example <laughs> that that happened kind of under the radar, but that is that the US Defense Innovation Unit just two weeks ago, right after the AUKUS announcement, signed a contract with the Australian Hypersonics, with an X yep. um, agency to provide, or company, yep. to provide a hypersonic test vehicle to the United States. So even while Pillar 2 is not yet formally in place, there's already some, you know, some, some wild growth happening you know, already. Absolutely. And and then the Australian equivalent is also working on these technologies. Um, and as well as US, um, US startups are standing up um, subsidiaries in Australia, um, which is um, a great way to um, get into the Australian ecosystem. And it's been an interesting, interesting concept too. I mean, both Linda and I were inside of government and we're now both outside of government. Um, and I said, I think that us communicating with one another, us translating between you know the government side and the private capital side, but then also between allied nations. And so you know part of the goal of, of the defense investor network, you know, starting in the U.S. but then spanning across, is to have conversations with entrepreneurs and with investors and with these private capital providers. That that you know Australia has some really incredible. I mean, between some you know mining, between quantum, I mean, some really amazing capabilities, amazing world class talent. I, one of our Dearest friends that we're here with in town now is actually at a, with a, with a quantum computing company that's here in Sydney, um, and so I think I think back. I mean, it's it's not a soft skill, but but communication, open communication between our our three governments, open communication between the private capital providers of these three countries, and frankly, more countries. Um, you know, NATO is actually starting a big Diana program and a big innovation program, and so we're looking at how is this going to spread across NATO countries. Um, so you know, as, as we are looking at um, you know. Uh, world powers that are that are trying to act nefariously. Um, I think it's going to really take, you know, an allied approach to it. Um, I think the, the the U.S. government, I think, you know, we're, we're waking up to that. We are, you know, we realize that we can't do this by ourselves anymore. And so I think the partnership with with Australia is is key. I mean, it's, it's a huge it's a it's a it's a massive importance to us. And so um, but we can't just stop with 
high-level government meetings. This needs to filter down into the private capital place, that those that are those that are entrepreneurial, those that are innovating, world-class talent, world-class teams. And I think just to close out that, I, um, for, certainly President Biden, as well as the um, the leaders in Australia and UK, have indicated that this has to be a paradigm shift, that this, this AUKUS is not just another little grouping, that this is a, um, a primary um, shift in, um, in the way we view our um, relationships with each other and our collaboration. And this has to be, um, we have to have a different approach um, a more collaborative approach. Well, then Australia has made it into the quad as well. So we've got, you know, we've got <laughs> India, Japan, Australia, and the U.S. You know, again, there. So there's some redundancy there, but um, all of those relationships, all of these partnerships, are, are critical. Yeah, we could just combine quad and AUKUS and call it quadcus. <laughs> um, I want to come to the second part of my question in the last couple of minutes that we have left, which is the hard work. So yes, the aspirations for collaboration are there, but what are the hurdles that we have to get over? And this is really what we got, what the three of us talk about most of the time when we get together. So after 25 years um, in the U.S. government and before that in the U.N. system, what I know is that the um, incentive, the incentives um, are not aligned with pushing the envelopes. Um, when you get your yearly evaluation, nobody's asking how many new companies have you brought in, how much new technology have you brought into the system. They're looking at a much more standardized um, uh, metrics. And, and so I think in order to make um, the Department of Defense, both the uh, Australian Department of Defense and the U.S. Department of Defense more um, welcoming to innovation and um, to um, new technologies. They we need to um, realign the incentive mechanisms. Um, and um, um, as a lawyer, I was um, known in in the Pentagon for pushing people to use authorities that they're not comfortable using. Um, and I. My 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 talking point always was um, Congress wouldn't have given this to us if they didn't want us to, to to try to use them. And if they think we go too far, then we will um, now know our right and left limits. I'm going to push you a little bit because often when this conversation comes up, it's about export controls. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about investment here, and that doesn't you normally get the same kind of exposure that export trade export controls get. So can you guys tell me a little bit about the export or the sorry, the, the investment hurdles that we need to get across to make this happen? We don't know how to do investment. Um, we're, we're learning, um, you know, there um, to take an equity investment or a debt investment um, is um, is something new. The government, U.S. government knows how to make um, loans and it knows how to give grants. Um, but um, uh, stretching the investment concept is um, is new and a little bit scary. But uh, the Department of Defense is doing it, and um, it's doing it in a big way, um, um, working with the Small Business Administration and others in the U.S. government. And so we hope to have a different story next year at the Sydney Dialogue. I think one of the challenges, too, that, that inherently the Department of Defense, our government, isn't allowed to make money, right? And so then when you're working with entrepreneurs and venture capitalists, they wake up every day and the, first, the the only thing they're thinking about is, you know, how are we going to make money? Um, and, and you know, we'll, we'll put the, the national security lens, you know, right along with that. But I think, I think again, getting those two worlds to understand each other, um, and that takes, that takes a long time. Um, so there have been some amazing programs that have been set up, I think mostly in the, in the United States, starting with, but shift where we've got folks from inside government coming out to then spend six months working in a venture capital firm or working at a startup or having folks from the venture industry go and we've got the Defense Innovation Board, we've got the you know Defense Investor Network, like these things being set up that aren't really so much partnerships as they are just people in the in the private sector saying we care and saying like this matters and like we understand that that you know our way of living that we've become so accustomed to um you know if they're on sand hill road isn't isn't going to perpetuate unless we become part of this fight so i think just the real mind shift 
All right. I mean, it's been fun talking to you. I'd love to talk to you for another hour, two hours, three hours, <laughs> but we don't, we're out of time. So thank you very much, Linda Laurie. Thank you very much, Heather Richmond. Thanks, and enjoy the Sydney Dialogue. Thanks, John. Thank this has been great. That's all we have time for on Policy Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thank you for listening.